Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are thrilled to have our first interview with Chris Edwards. Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. I'm so looking forward to this. Chris has been one of my tax mentors for decades, so (laughs) it's going to be great. Yeah, you know, all of the shows are fun to prep for because, you know, we've selected the material that we want to talk about. But let's just say that some are more fun than others. This one was really fun to prep for. <laughs> it was. These are two really good papers. <laughs> yep, yep. So let me do the 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 required bio intro and we'll talk, uh, we'll get him on here. Chris Edwards is the Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and the editor of DownsizingGovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues before joining Cato. Chris was the senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, a manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. He is the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Chris Edwards. Hey, thanks a lot uh, for having me, Ed and Ron. Uh, this, this will be fun, as you said. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, we, we're looking forward to you and we're going to let our listeners know that we have not only booked you for today, but we've booked you for tax day um, and we'll talk taxes then. But we don't want to talk about taxes today. We're going to talk about two of two papers, although they do occasionally deal with, with some taxation, two t- papers that you have uh, recently written, one from September 29th, How Wealth Fuels Growth, and the other one, is on entrepreneurs and the and state regulations and local regulations back in May of 2021. But I want to start with uh, how wealth fuse growth with you, Chris. And a quote from your article, you're talking about the Washington Post saying, the, there is an ever higher concentration of national wealth at the top. Paul Krugman wrote that we are living in an era of extraordinary wealth concentrated in the hands of a few people. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but haven't we been hearing this for decades, if not centuries? <laughs> well, the uh, one I wanted to do a corrective with this study at at, at Cato, uh, talking about some of the great things that wealthy people do with their money, and and that they uniquely do with their money. If you look at the the wealthiest Americans, the top one percent, or the top point one percent, or whatever, only a tiny fraction of their money they use for personal consumption assets, like their homes. The vast majority of the wealth of people like Jeff Bezos are in business assets that provide jobs for people. So Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, he's worth around $100 billion or something like that these days. But he, his company, Amazon, that he started in his garage now employs over a million people. So wealth is mainly business assets and business assets hire people. You know, the, the left seems to view sort of capital and labor as opponents and enemies, sort of like the old Marxist idea, but the truth is they're complements. If you want, if you want, uh, if we want to provide job opportunities for Americans and we want to be have a productive high-income economy, we need lots of capital, lots of investment. And wealthy people, and that's where their money, that is what that is what wealth is. It is business assets ultimately, and, and they hire individuals. 
Well, you mentioned uh, the wealth of Jeff Bezos, and I had a, a question really planned for later on. But since you bring it up, let me let me ask it now. And that is you talk and cite the work of William Nordhaus in your paper. And Ron and I have talked about that and the fact that entrepreneurs roughly keep about 2% of the wealth that they have created outside of themselves. So I just want to make sure that I have this right in my head. I'm not an accountant. I'm not an economist. But if that if that if this holds true, if that that concept holds true for Jeff Bezos, the way that we would figure this is that he's worth about a hundred billion dollars. So we would multiply that hundred billion by forty nine because he keeps two percent. So multiply it by forty nine. That he has created outside of himself four point nine trillion dollars of wealth. Do do I have my math right there? <laughs> uh, no, I, that that is basically right. In the long run, prosperity and higher incomes uh, in our uh, economy today come from innovation. Virtually all increases in living standards in the long run come from innovation. You know, economists will also often say labor and capital, but capital is really you, you know each. All capital investment is really investing in new and better capital. When Intel Corporation builds a new chip plant, they build a new and better chip plant with new and better machines. So ultimately, it's all innovation that creates our higher standard of living. And the Nordhaus um, academic study went to the fact that, yes, it's true that some people like Bezos and Elon Musk, they get personally wealthy, but they have generated a, a much greater vast wealth for the rest of us in society than they uh, are, are taking themselves. I'll give you a really good and, and highly topical example of this. The, uh, what has helped to save us from COVID, of course, are the two, uh, uh, the two uh, mRNA vaccines that were developed by American Moderna and the German company BioNTech with mainly with their own money, but $3 billion of private investment went into those companies, those two companies over a decade. They developed these mRNA vaccines. Uh, the, the, uh, the crisis hit in early 2020. Those companies went into overdrive and developed these vaccines for us that are benefiting the whole world now. So uh, that technology breakthrough was remarkable. Government didn't do it. Big companies didn't make those breakthroughs. It was these small entrepreneurial companies that made those breakthroughs. And, and that mRNA technology, is my understanding, is it's going to create these really broad benefits to society, not just with vaccines and, and uh, influenza vaccines and other sorts of things, but really broad um, advances in cancer research and other areas. So the private investment by just two of these small biotech companies could have these really profound implications on the long-term health of all of us on this planet. So I think that's a type of really, you know, broad, um, uh, broad prosperity that can be created with private capital investment. Well, we had Ronald Bailey on the show in, in I think, September, if I'm not mistaken, of, of 2020, I think. And he made the bold prediction that because of what Moderna and BioNTech have, are producing is that we might be experiencing the last pandemic because of that. Um, so I think that's that's pretty cool. But I want to get back to Moderna and BioNTech. I'm a Moderna recipient, by the way, so I fully endorse their stuff. Um, but these are not old companies. You know, one of the mantras that I heard is that, well, this is just, you know, big pharma getting rich again. These are new companies. These are companies that started, I guess, less than two decades ago anyway. That's right. Both both Moderna and BioNTech were founded just over a decade ago. And as I mentioned, they were both funded initially by angel investors and then later venture capital companies. So BioNTech was a German company, uh, started uh, uh, initially started by an entrepreneur with his uh, a scientist with uh, uh, 
with sort of a uh, so who had made some breakthroughs in, with mRNA, but a, a pair of German brothers who had, who had got rich in the pharma industry dumped 180 million dollars into BioNTech a decade or so ago because they 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 thought this mRNA had um, some real potential. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and other reporters have reported on how some of the big pharma companies overlooked mRNA. They didn't think you could make it work. These two entrepreneurial companies, the BioNTech and then Moderna up in Massachusetts, they had the they had enormous guts. If you go back and read news articles from a few years ago about those companies, there was a lot of there's a huge amount of risk that those companies were taking. And thank goodness that their investors stuck with them, uh, and they eventually made these uh, breakthroughs that are now benefiting all of us. So just curious in your research, I don't recall seeing it in the paper, but were there other mRNA companies that maybe people invested in that didn't make it? You do make that point in your paper that there's a lot of losers in all of this, but we only see the winners. No, that's exactly right. I, I think those were the two main, uh, the two leaders in, in that technology. Um, you're right. There's a massive amount of um, one of the things I go one of the things I go into in my paper is all these companies that uh, initially a lot of investors avoided. Uh, that be, later became, you know, usually successful. Spotify, Uber, Google, Twitter, YouTube, Tesla. A lot of investors, when, when those uh, entrepreneurs were shopping around for money initially, overlooked them, thought, thought they were crazy ideas. Uh, it was, you had to have a lot of guts to invest in these uh, long shot companies. So my paper looks at uh, angel investors. These are, there's about 330 wealthy people in America who, who take their personal wealth and invest in risky startups. Only about one in 10 of their uh, high risk investments, it turns out to be a big hit like an Uber or Twitter or something like that. I mean, think about uh, Elon Musk was the first big initial investor in Tesla. So to invest in Tesla, you would have have, have to think that you could, uh, you could think uh, and, and uh, make innovations that GM and Ford and uh, Honda and Toyota we're missing that, you know, you had the guts to think that I can create uh, a uh, really marketable EV vehicle when all these big companies haven't been able to do it or they must think it's a bad idea. So guys like Musk had huge amount of money. Musk put his own personal wealth into Tesla. Uh, good for him. So uh, th there's always a huge amount of risk. Uh, it takes a special type of person, a special type of wealthy person to invest in startups. And thank goodness. Uh, we have a lot of those people in America, which is one of the reasons why we have such an innovative economy. Yes. One of the things that I did learn from your paper is that I, I thought Elon Musk created Tesla. I, I really did not right. know that it was originally a company that was started and he was uh, the major investor and then, of course, became CEO. Um, and now uh, just getting back to, to, to Bezos, although Musk is part of this as well, uh, you know, we had uh, the, the over the summer, uh, both uh, Elon Musk company and and um, and Bezos's company, as well as I, I can't remember the other uh, third company, Galactica, uh, that went into space. And all we heard was, is they why are they spending this money going into space? <laughs> they should be solving world hunger <laughs> the, 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 to keep the money right here. What's the problem with this? So respond to that. Why should why should they have not you, gone into you space? Get naysayer whenever whenever you get an entrepreneur and and the investors uh, back them with a, a really crazy sounding idea. You always get naysayers. In my paper, I go through all kinds of examples, like when Alexander Graham Bell, uh, you know, had this idea for the, his telephone breakthrough. Western Union, the dominant 
a monopoly uh, telegraph company who pooed it. Alexander Graham Bell literally went to the head of Western Union and said, hey, I got this new technology. Can you help me find it? He said, no, that's a crazy idea. And you see this over and over and over. So a lot of these ideas, like now space travel, I guess, may sound crazy to some people, but they could be the basis of major industries in the future. You know, space tourism may or may not work. We don't know. We need entrepreneurs to try it out, to test. We need experiments. You know, the old way to do space was monopoly, NASA, the government uh, agency. NASA, of course, had, had many successes, but they also had many failures and they had massively high uh, costs. I mean, things like their space station cost way more than the originally promised and the like. The, the advantage of having all these entrepreneurs go in is that they always look for ways to cut costs. And you see this uh, in industry after uh, industry that, you know, when you have a diversity of entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs with the best ideas, the ones who can produce the product at the lowest cost uh, end up winning and they drive the economy forward. Well, time is flying by. We're against our first break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We are, of course, sponsored by File. File is an expense reporting system that really takes the work out of doing expense reports and just sucks them all in from things like your email. Uh, check them out at filehq.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah. And of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah. And they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system. So you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep. So check them out at filehq.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. 
Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download. Oh, oh my fraud. fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. And Chris, your other paper from May 5th, 2021 is Entrepreneurs and Regulations, Removing State and Local Barriers to New Business. This was a, also a great read. I, mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of these papers. This one's kind of a little bit wonkier, I think, but I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I have to ask you about is you, you start out by saying the startup rate in the United States fell a decade ago, and it's never fully recovered. In fact, it's kind of been trending down since the 80s. What happened? That's right. The, uh, the, the rate of startups, in other words, the number of uh, businesses, uh, the, the number of startups in America divided by the total number of businesses has been falling, actually, since the late 70s, just sort of trending down from a, a peak of over 12% back then to uh, only around 8% today. Uh, economists have looked at this, and we haven't uh, got any uh, definitive sort of answer but a lot of economists do think it's the rise in regulation has had something to do with the decline in startups. And to give you a really prominent example that has got a lot of uh, press in recent years is that if you go back to, to the 1950s, only about 5% of jobs in America required some sort of occupational uh, license. Uh, today, over 20% do. So today, if you want to be a travel agent or a bartender, or an athletic trainer, or an auctioneer, or a massage therapist in some states, you need an official, uh, you know, uh, stamp from the government saying you got training, you've, you know, paid the cost of training, you've taken tests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's creating a barrier to small businesses, uh, and it's it it creates sort of a monopoly with, that favors big companies against startup entrepreneurs. So, there's a lot of in the paper I discuss barriers like that to startup businesses. I, I discuss um, you know, alcohol laws are one big barrier to startup businesses. I didn't, I didn't recognize before I, I did the uh, the study, and and so um, you know, federal politicians often uh, talk a lot about helping small businesses and the like. But rather than subsidizing them, I, we ought to look at a lot of state and local governments impose a lot of regulations that stand as unneeded barriers to, to startup entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, and I want to get into some of those with you, like zoning and minimum wage and all the other things that you talked about. But th this seemed counterintuitive, me, counterintuitive to me, Chris, that young people are starting fewer businesses in the past. You, you cite the Kauffman Foundation that 20 to 34 year olds in 1996 launched about 35 percent of startups. And in 2014, it dropped to 18 percent. One thing that's a little weird. One thing that's odd about this is that it has become. In a lot of ways, it's become easier to start businesses. The costs have fallen. The computer revolution in the 1980s, the internet revolution starting in the 90s, has, and, and many other things today, 3D printing and the cloud computing, have reduced the costs of starting businesses. And, and we, we, uh, we've got more women in the workforce, more women starting businesses. You would think the startup rate would be rising. It's easier for small businesses to compete against big businesses today. We see that all the time. You know, Uber took on the hotel industry 
uh, an Air or Airbnb took on the hotel industry, and Uber took on taxis and the like. So yeah, you would think that the startup rate would be rising, but the if, you know the government data shows it's been trending down. Although uh, it's also true though, oddly since the pandemic in 2020, there does seem to be a spike upwards in startups, and I don't think economists know yet what that means, but. Um, it could be because people were thrown out of jobs in 2020. Uh, we'll see in the next uh, couple of years what, what, uh, whether that's a trend that will continue. Hopefully it does. I, I know you're an economist, not a sociologist, but do you think it has something to do with younger people today being less risk to, or tolerant of risk or willing to take risk? Uh, it could be the big, I think the bigger welfare state in general. I mean, I don't want to be political here, but it is true. The, the, the comfier, uh, and more expansive the welfare state you have, it's easier for people not to work. If someone if someone gets fired or they get laid off, in the if there is, if you think about the extremes, if there's no welfare state at all, they got to get off their butt quickly and get out there and do something like start a business to get income for their family. In the modern expansive welfare state, uh, it's easier not to take that risk, uh, you know, to start businesses. I mean, the, the historically, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you this, is that they, they often in the past, they started businesses when they were in a corner, they needed to earn money, no one was hiring them, they had, they, and, they, and they decided to, hey, this is the real chance I got to go out and do and, and execute that idea I've been thinking about. So maybe that's one of the reasons. Who knows about culture? I mean, on the one hand, I'd see with culture, there's the TV show Shark Tank, which I love, I watch with my daughters uh, all the time. It's great, it's very pro-entrepreneurial. Uh, on the other hand, there's, you know, kind of a Bernie Sanders, uh, you, you know, uh, ideas about the economy that a lot of young people like, the, the socialist ideas. So I don't know. There's different cultural strains in our economy today. Uh, you know, we should be encouraging young people to be entrepreneurial and to start businesses. Right. It just seems like with people like out, out there like Peter Thiel with his fellowships and Y Combinator and some of the, these other platforms that are out there designed to help entrepreneurs, you would think it would be increasing and it's not. It's just right. just very counterintuitive. Um, before we get into your ranking of, of the states, which is absolutely fascinating, you put together this entrepreneurial regulatory barriers index where you look at 17 variables. But before we get there and look at the states, in international comparisons, the USA looks pretty good for entrepreneurialism, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, I, I, you know, America's all, of course, always had a very strong entrepreneurial uh, tradition. I think that that continues. Uh, thank, thank goodness. Uh, you know, I think that the fact that a lot of people like uh, Elon Musk have made these remarkable uh, breakthroughs that um, that have, uh, you know, astounded, you know, uh, uh, economy watchers and taken big companies by surprise. I think that's a great thing. It should be inspiring to young people. I hope that continues. Um, there are international surveys of entrepreneurship. I don't know how accurate they are, but the data does show that United States uh, does well on the level of entrepreneurship. Where I think we're lacking is we, United States is a pretty heavy regulated uh, country. There are other countries that do better on regulations. Some do better on, on tax policy. I know we're going to be talking about taxes on the show in April, but you know I think capital gains tax policy is an area where United States can do a lot better. So I think uh, I think Americans are doing great with entrepreneurship. I think the government puts some barriers in the way of entrepreneurs that we don't need and we, we ought to be reforming. 
Right, right. You cite the Global Entrepreneurship Index that has USA at number one, but then when you look at the World Bank ease of doing business, we're number six for doing business, but number 55 for launching a business. And, and I must say, and we're going to be getting into it, but I mean, the uh, it's hard to it's hard to judge United States overall as one entity because it's so massive, and different states and even different cities, of course, have very different regulatory uh, burdens on businesses. There is a big difference between places like Florida and New York City. You know, if you want to start a small business, so uh, you have to take that into account as well. I was also surprised, Chris, that you said U.S. regulations on business are at least as heavy as Europeans, and and they've gotten better, and we haven't. That, that, that's right. I, I think some Americans, in particular, I think on the sort of the conservative right, will think of Europe as just sort of some uh, uh, welfare state basket case when it comes to the economy. But actually, there's a lot of areas where the Europeans are a lot more, they've opened up their economies a lot more than us. One very good example is we have a monopoly postal system in this country. Uh, a lot of countries in Europe, Germany, Britain, they've privatized their postal companies and they've opened it up for competition. If you want to deliver letter mail in Britain, you can. In Germany, you can. Um, and there's a lot of actually interesting uh, areas where the Europeans, have uh, they, they do have generally larger governments, but in some areas they have, they have opened their economy more up to entrepreneurship. So you're in your entrepreneur regulatory barriers index, you have these 17 variables, and then you come up with rankings for the lowest barrier states and the highest barriers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, it's hard to get an overall view of, you know, which states are the best or worst. With taxation, of course, you can compare the states easily. You can just look at the total dollar burden and the like. Uh, with regulations, I, I chose 17 areas where I could kind of get data. So for example, I talk a lot about home-based businesses in my in my study. A lot of local governments put uh, really tight zoning regulations on that make it difficult, say, to start say a food business, uh, uh, like making baked products or something uh, in your home. Um, so, uh, in that particular case, there is someone out there who actually tracks which states are better and worse for starting home-based food businesses. So, I was able I was able to use existing indexes and studies to come up with an overall uh, ranking of the 50 states, which may be imperfect, but um, but that's what that's what my study tried to do. And, and the lowest barrier states are what, Georgia, South Dakota, North Dakota, Colorado, New Hampshire, Kansas, Indiana, Wyoming, Utah, and Ohio. Some of, so generally it seems that the generally smaller government states, generally in the Southeast and the South and West uh, are doing better with regulatory barriers in some of the Northeast states. and others, they have lower barriers to entrepreneurship than the Northeast states, but there are exceptions. And one, one I go into detail in my study about marijuana that's now been uh, legalized for recreational use in 18 states. I don't know how all your listeners feel about that, but you know, I'm in favor of that. I think every state ought to legalize recreational marijuana. Um, but so, but it's, it's often been, there's a lot of Northeastern states that have legalized now. And as some of the, a lot of the Southeastern states or more conservative states that haven't. So I think you have to kind of go regulation by regulation to see which states, uh, are best for startups. And let's say if you're a marijuana entrepreneur, obviously you're going to want to move and set up operations and invest in the businesses that have the most, um, liberal rules for, you know, that industry you're in, whether it's marijuana or some other uh, industries. Well, one of the things I loved you 
that you pointed out, especially when you talk about home-based businesses, is this is where craft brewing start started after they repealed the law, what, in 78 or something. And today it's a $22 billion industry. That, that's exact. Craft brewing is a, is a fascinating and often overlooked uh, industry and story in the, in, uh, in the history of deregulation. Interesting, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, present late 70s, of course, he was actually a real star uh, for deregulation. He was the one who deregulated trucking and railroads and some other industries. He also deregulated craft brewing. Before 1978, it was illegal for you to brew beer in your home. It was illegal. So he repealed the federal law, but then it was still illegal in every state for you to start a um, a, uh, a, a craft a beer uh, you know, a restaurant. Why? Because every state had a monopoly dis- distributor. You could brew beer, but then you had to sell the beer to a, a monopoly middleman distributor. So states started repealing those laws. And, and that's when we've got this explosion in uh, craft uh, brewing, which uh, everyone would agree now has been a massive success. Back in 1980, there was 100 breweries in America. Today, there's over 8,000 breweries in America. That is a deregulation story. And I, I think people need to be reminded of that. It didn't just it didn't just happen, you know. There was right. proactive, good ref- government reforms that took place here that allowed all these entrepreneurs to go into that industry. And and then uh, we don't have much time, Chris, before our break. But I just love this when when I read this point that you made about this. You said this is a better way for states to promote economic growth and innovation rather than giving subsidies to companies like Amazon to move their headquarters there. This doesn't cost anything. That's that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, I remember a few years ago when Amazon was looking for uh, their sort of second headquarters location, they ultimately decided on Northern Virginia near where I I live for one of their uh, headquarters. And the Commonwealth of Virginia and our local government here dumped all this money into getting to locate there. But that means taxes are probably going to have to be higher on other small businesses. And, you know, other small businesses are the ones that that do all the great experimentation and generate are constantly generating um, new jobs in the economy. You know, there's 30 million small businesses in America. There's constant churn. We need every community in America needs small businesses. And um, so all this focus on subsidizing the big boys uh, to locate it's really it's unfair to small businesses and it's completely unnecessary and a waste of our tax money. Absolutely true. Well, Chris, unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out uh, our Patreon channel, which is patreon.com slash TSOE. You can become a subscriber. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More Minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com and at a certain tier uh, in our patreon membership you can get a shout out like blake oliver did he's got a new podcast earmarkcpe.com check it out you can earn cpe for listening to podcasts and now we want to hear from our sponsors Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. We're talking about his May 5th, 2021 paper or policy anal- analysis, which is Entrepreneurs and Regulations. And Chris, some of the things you examine are minimum wage, occupational licensing, restaurant, alcohol licensing, marijuana. And another one is the Certificate of Needs laws. And these, to me, this is the most egregious thing. And you say in here that the FTC it's got a bipartisan consensus that these things need to go. Why haven't they been repealed? The, the certificate of need laws, anyone who reads them about it with a fair mind will come away thinking, what the heck is our government <laughs> doing? It's, they're really the most idiotic laws. There's 34 states that have certificate of need laws. They mainly are in the healthcare field. Uh, what they do is anyone who wants to start, say, I don't know, an ambulance service, a nursing home, any kind of healthcare industry in these 34 states, uh, they have to go to a government board. The boards are often dominated by existing providers in that industry and who have to sign off and allow the entrepreneur to enter the industry. It makes absolutely no sense. It's like we were talking about craft brewing. It's like a new craft brewer would have to go to um, you know, Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors to ask whether they're allowed to start a new brewery (laughs) to compete against them. But that's the case in 34 states that have these certificate of need laws. Again, they're mainly in healthcare, but they've also been in trucking and some uh, other industries. They're really, they're really dumb. And there's actually there, as you mentioned, Ron, there's some uh, federal uh, economists and federal agencies like the federal trade commission have looked at this and they think it's stupid, but no, it's the lobbying power of these some of these monopoly businesses in these states that keep these laws uh, in place, unfortunately. 
That's pretty bad when the FTC is the voice of reason. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I, by the way, I just I did not know that the the origin of the con laws were from the 19th century in the railroad industry. I found that fascinating. Right. Well, the idea, you know, the idea goes to the supporters of these laws originally thought that you could they had sort of a central planning mindset that, well, if we're going to have an efficient healthcare industry, you know, we need to sort of um, manage how many companies are in it and what services they're providing and the like. But that's, of course, not how the real market economy works. Uh, as we've sort of discussed, the future is unknowable. So we need many entrepreneurs starting many businesses. We need a diversity of companies in industries challenging existing companies. Uh, we need that in every industry. And you know, one of the problems when you have government dominated industries, like the postal service we discussed is a good example. It's illegal for, for an entrepreneur to start a letter mail company. Uh, the government has a legal monopoly. Well, there are probably many innovations that would have taken place in the letter mail industry if it wasn't for that government monopoly. But we don't know because we haven't allowed entrepreneurs uh, to go in and test. So, you know, we should have open, wide open doors in every industry. We want to bring entrepreneurs uh, uh, in. I'll give you another example of that is uh, every urban transit system in America is now run by governments. But that never used to be the case. Before the 1960, most urban transit systems, in other words, trail, uh, rail, uh, trolley systems, and bus systems, they were privately owned and operated, and there was a lot of innovation. The government's now taken them over, so we don't have any innovation in that industry anymore. So we, we need to open these industries up, it seems to me, and let entrepreneurs bring their skills. You know, you mentioned the occupational licensing, and we did a whole show on that. It was episode 225, Greg. But and, and how it's climbed from 5% of jobs in the 50s to 22%. And Chris, I've even seen higher based on some of the books I've read on this topic. I even went back and read Melton Friedman's PhD thesis, uh, which was originally <laughs> okay. about this topic. And, uh, you know, you, you have, you, you mentioned some uh, reforms in Florida about how they finally removed interior designers has to be the stupidest occupational licensing. And I didn't know that boxing announcers were licensed um, do you, do you, are you hopeful that you will see more states get rid of these or is this just pandering to the special interests of the occupation? I actually think we're, we're seeing some movement there because even some, both there's both liberal and conservative libertarian policymakers who are interested in reforming those laws. The Obama administration actually, uh, issued a very good, uh, study a number of years ago on, um, on reforming the occupational licensing. And you have states like in Arizona, uh, the governor, uh, the governor led a reform where they basically say, hey, if you got a license for something like a travel agent in another state, you can uh, do travel agency in uh, in in Arizona. So uh, there's that sort of uh, th that sort of reform is easy to do, it seems to me, you know, and it gets over this concern. I think a false concern that people have is we need government to control these professions for safety reasons. Well, if other states have licensed have licensed certain individuals, then we, we should assume that they're they're fully licensed, just like different states accept the driver's licenses from other states. We should accept occupational licenses from other states. That's that's an easy reform for states to make, I think. Right, right. And then, you know, you also mentioned New York City and you were talking about how it's different, obviously, than Florida. But a small business in New York City is subject to 6,000 regulations, 15 different agencies that, that issue 250 different types of permits takes six months or longer. And, and th this blew my mind. They hire expediters 
yes. to move their applications. In big, not just New York, in many big cities, in Miami actually, and San Francisco, uh, the the bureaucracy that approves uh, building permitting and, and zoning changes and this sort of stuff, the bureaucracies are so Byzantine, they're so complex that individual businesses generally need to hire expediters. These are professional firms that go in, will stand in line for you, that personally know some of the bureaucrats, they can move things along. And that's actually, as I discussed in my paper, the complexity has led to a lot of corruption in cities like New York, where you know these expediter firms get really cozy with the government bureaucrats who can give the approvals and it provides a real opening for bribery. And there's been scandals all in many cities uh, on that. And uh, I actually, that, that's actually a theme that I go into for a number. A lot of, the more complex these local regulations are, the more you open it up for corruption. Um, to give you another example, I go into the fact that there are 18 states that put uh, limits or caps on the number of restaurant alcohol licenses they, were allow that they will allow. New Jersey is one of the tightest. Massachusetts is very tight. So what this means is that um, if you want an alcohol license, it creates this incentive for you to bribe the government official to get your license, or you have to buy one in the secondary market, and they often cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you want to open a restaurant with serving alcohol in New Jersey, you must pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy an existing alcohol license. It's completely crazy. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's where it's hard to get reform because the restaurants that already have these licenses that paid for them, of course, they don't want newcomers coming in. Uh, so as soon as you get a license, you immediately become sort of a lobbyist against reform. Um, so it's a very, we used to see that in the taxi cab industry before Uber came along. New York limited the number of taxi cab licenses, the cost of the license or medallion as they ca called it, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to get one. And uh, this is it. So uh, we should not put these artificial caps on entrepreneurship uh, in these industries like in taxi cabs or uh, alcohol. And we're starting to see that in the marijuana industry now. It's a, it's a big mistake. It leads to corruption and it creates a barrier to entrepreneurship. Chris, I don't think this was in your paper, but I, I, I promise you I'm not making this up in that episode that we did on occupational licensing. I had uh, done uh, read a couple books from the Institute of Justice folks and, and a couple of other economists, and I'm not making this up. In Chicago, expediters are licensed. <laughs> so it's the ultimate corruption feeding on. I, I couldn't believe that when I read that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one last question, I think, because I've only got about a minute or so with you. Uh, the Economist has been writing for the last two years incessantly about economic concentration, you know, amongst big business or various industries that they look at. They have all these w silly indexes. Isn't isn't that being fed by what you're talking about in this paper? The more it, we inhibit the, the right. upstarts, the the more we subsidize the the big boys. That's right. The more uh, all these regulations that prevent new entrepreneurs from entering industries uh, uh, just uh, help the big boys. So, for example, I discussed the postal service. You know, it's a big, overbloated corporation that needs to downsizing and to get leaner. Well, we can do that if we let FedEx in to deliver letter mail. Uh, historically, we've seen, for example, AT&T became a huge bloated monopoly in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And MCI Corporation, funded by private investors in the 70s, came in and started 
um, um, uh, um, chipping away at AT&T's monopoly. And they had to battle in the courts and battle in Congress. And eventually, you know, they were allowed into long distance and MCI revolutionized the long distance and telecom industry in America. You see the same with FedEx. Before FedEx came along in the 70s, package delivery was slow and unreliable. FedEx had to battle their way in. They had to battle the regulations to allow themselves to get into that industry. So, uh, you know, the way we deal with concentration in the American economy, if it's a problem, is to open up barriers to make sure angel investors are well-funded by keeping tax rates low. And uh, you're always going to have aggressive entrepreneurs uh, in a free market who want to go in and battle the big boys, but we have to let them. We have to let them battle uh, the big boys by, by uh, reducing these regulations. Excellent. Well, Chris, this has been such an honor to have you on. So looking forward to you coming back in April. Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but thank you so much for appearing. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, so it's been an honor. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with the Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of DownsizingGovernment.org, Chris Edwards. And Chris, going back to your paper on how wealth fuels growth, you have a concept in there that you called the wealth waterfall. I don't know, but it sounds like the rich just keep getting richer to me, Chris. <laughs> so if you look at uh, Silicon Valley, of course, has been the center of um, the American high-tech industry for a number of decades now. And a lot of people have asked why. And there is a bunch of different reasons. I mean, the weather's great out there. A lot of young, smart people wanted to move there. They've benefited a lot from uh, Asian immigration. A lot of the Asian immigrants have started a lot of uh, startup companies. But one thing that has happened also is that there's been this massive explosion uh, in wealth that has been reinvested locally. So if you look at, say, the, um, the semiconductor industry, it started way back in the 50s and 60s with companies like Shockley Semiconductor, that spawned, that created wealth. Some of those people left and started their own company, including Fairchild Semiconductor. People left Fairchild Semiconductor and they started companies like Intel um, you know, Semiconductor and on and on. So when companies uh, uh, have big breakthroughs, they get wealthy. A lot of the engineers and scientists may leave, start their own company. And there's a lot of local investors, angel investors and venture capitalists who are around who often want to uh, invest locally. So this this wealth the waterfall keep the, the wealth keeps being recycled in places like Silicon Valley and if we don't put taxes too high that wealth will keep recycling uh, wealthy people wealthy entrepreneurs uh, you know want to invest in new entrepreneurs they want to sort of give back to the community by finding young entrepreneurs to invest in and you see that in places like Silicon Valley I mean Apple Computer is another good example Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak had this great idea. But it's this guy called Mike Markula, who had previously been in the high-tech industry, that provided the crucial key investment of about $100,000 early on that, that allowed Jobs and Wozniak to bring their Apple II to market. So we need wealthy people uh, to invest in startups. Uh, and, then, and then some startups will succeed. People will get wealthy. They'll reinvest the money in new startups. And that's so it's sort of like perpetual motion. Uh, machine that the American economy has generated. So let's keep that going. Yeah, when I was reading through this section of the paper, it, it kind of reminded me of sometimes you see on on the on football the coaching trees. You know, it's like the, this coach and he had all of his assistants, and then these assistants begat these assistants, and all the way down <laughs> would be would be interesting to to kind of uh, graph that out. You know, network diagram that out just to see you know where some of these things are related, but. You know, that which obviously sets on this notion of then angel investors. And one of the things that you cite and quoting from the paper, the largest factor in producing rising living standards over the long term is technological progress and innovation, not simply the accumulation of capital. And you said this earlier in the interview, but the question I have for you is, is this what many folks on the left and the right don't get? They I mean, I think I think this is the, the, the thing that they just cannot get through their heads. That this is how it works. No, no, that's exactly right. And we've seen, for example, there's been a bill that they, the, that has bipartisan support in recent years uh, in Congress. They want to subsidize, give big subsidies to the semiconductor industry. Well, that's not, you know, that's not the, the semiconductor industry came from private capital and these aggressive entrepreneurs competing against each other. 
Um, and you look at every successful industry, it's not based on sort of government subsidies. Uh, it's, it's based on people with new ideas, with people, uh, wealthy people willing to uh, risk their private capital and invest in them. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, we, we don't know where what, what the big and most successful industries are going to be in the future. I mean, a lot of today's companies like Facebook may not be around tomorrow. We don't know what the next big industry is going to be. We need a lot of experiments, a lot of wealthy people funding a lot of experiments and startups to find out and to test the waters uh, and, and we'll see what's next. You know, that American model of decentralized innovation will succeed in the long run. The people worried about China, they're really off base if they think that the, the Chinese are gonna beat us by central planning. It's nonsense. People thought when I came to Washington DC 30 years ago and started looking at public policy, everyone thought Japan and it's sort of their government subsidies to their uh, some of their big industries that they would, you know, the Japanese would bury us. It didn't happen uh, because the American model of decentralized innovation is really the way that's most successful in the long run. Well, that, you anticipated my next question, which were, are there angel investors in China or is it just one guy named Z? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously China, you know, China obviously got, uh, has been growing steadily for the last four decades because they moved toward markets. And it's not the government that's created the wealth. It's all those uh, aggressive and smart entrepreneurs in China that have started those millions of companies. So uh, it's really sad now that the central government has misread the lesson from their own history and is now trying to centrally plan and control things. Well, ultimately, that's going to undermine growth in China, which is very unfortunate. Uh, one of the things towards the end of the paper that I thought was interesting, give you a, a, a quick few minutes to, to start to describe here. What are the direct public offerings and special purpose acquisition companies? So I'm not an expert on uh, financial markets, but in the in my uh, paper on angel investment, I go into some extent on some of the changes we've seen in recent uh, decades. Um, uh, there are only ha half of the number of publicly traded companies in America today that there was just a few decades ago in the 90s. It's because uh, federal laws like Sarbanes-Oxley a couple decades ago and others have uh, imposed more and more regulatory burdens on publicly traded companies. So companies, startup companies, you see this in the high-tech industry, stay private longer before they uh, go public. Uh, and uh, you know, markets are always trying, trying to find more efficient ways to do it, but uh, SPACs were invented because it's, it, the government's made it so expensive to do an old-fashioned IPO that markets have created this new way of going public through a SPAC. Uh, direct public offerings are another way uh, to go public. It's just a cheaper way. You don't need all the expensive Wall Street advisors. Um, so, uh, you know, ultimately public markets are really important for, for growing uh, high-tech companies. At some point, you need to go public uh, for a number of reasons. You just need access to much more capital, but also the original investors want to exit. They want to get out of their original investments, and that's why companies go public. So, uh, the Here's one thing to remember is the easy it is to go, we make it to go public in the United States, the more startup capital we're going to get on the front end on, on entrepreneurial and risky uh, companies, because investors will know, hey, if I risk a lot of money into this startup five or 10 years down the road, it, it'll be easier for me to get out of that investment. So let's, let's make going public easier in America uh, by reducing the regulatory burden and we'll have more startups. 
which is a perfect segue. And we'll pick up the conversation in April to talk about tax policy. So <laughs> perfect ending point. Thanks, uh, Chris Edwards, for, for being on the Soul of Enterprise this week. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We're going to talk about Vivek Ramaswamy's new book, Woke Inc. All right. Well, I look forward to that. See you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us on Friday, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific, to talk about Woke Inc. And please go to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOA2. Guess what? Rate this podcast. In the meanwhile, wait. Uh, you can visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.